Ron. Hey, Hagar. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. It's been just a few days since the world's been watching in horror at the images and the videos of the brutal and seemingly very well-planned terrorist attack carried out against Israel by Hamas, which is calling it Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. And I've seen it's being referred to as Israel's 9-11, but you know, in proportional terms, this is far worse. It's more like eight 9-11s all at once. So while people can turn on the news at any time, uh, because the situation is obviously changing, evolving rapidly, I wanted to talk with you for a bit about how to understand this. So maybe we can begin with how this attack compares to others from Hamas and, and just how unprecedented is it? Sure. I'm glad you started there, actually. Since 2007, which is when Hamas took over Gaza in an election, there have been five bouts of violence between Israel and Gaza, including the latest terrorist attack. And those bouts of violence uh, always elicit a very brutal response from the Israeli government, um, including airstrikes in Gaza. And usually those, those moments of violence, those bouts have come up because uh, Hamas will see something happening uh, on the ground. In, in Israel, some kind of violence between Israelis and Palestinians inside Israel, or perhaps it's inside the West Bank. And they'll, they'll pursue these strikes behaving as though they are there to, to make gains on behalf of all Palestinians, as though they genuinely care about all Palestinians, and to pressure the Israeli government. And it never works, by the way. But anyway, every time that you've had these bouts of violence, they, are, they, they, they have the same response from the Israeli government, and typically it lasts very short. It's only about two to three weeks, four weeks, something like that. This time is, is different, though. And the reason is because the attack itself, first of all, is quite unprecedented. Usually this violence starts with missiles being lobbed from Gaza into Israel somehow. This time it was this all-out staged, very well-planned, as you said, uh, and, and executed, apparently, although some of it, I think, was just luck. Um, attack, a terrorist attack, where they breached the border into Israel through land, sea, and air. What that means is that they took a bulldozer and barged through the barbed wire fence, cut a hole through it. Then they had hundreds, if not thousands, of, of terrorists drive through on motorcycles. They had terrorists flying in through paragliders. Uh, and then they had folks coming in by, by boat. And they breached, not only did they breach the border, they went 15 miles into Israel, which is completely unprecedented. They went into 22 different towns. And the numbers, as you see from those dead and, and, and those kidnapped or taken, uh, only continue to climb. And we have seen, or we're discovering now at least, in areas that have been secured, and, and now today, uh, today, which uh, Tuesday, the Israeli government has said that they have secured different towns. They have pushed Hamas effectively out of Israel right now, and now their Gaza is the next step. Um, that uh, we're now seeing the 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 scenes that they've left behind, and a lot of it is just just a bloodbath and you know murders and massacres. And one in particular that is particularly horrifying was at a music concert, uh, some kind of yeah. rave that took place through the night, a musical festival where. Uh, over 260 people died, and many others were were taken hostage and kidnapped and raped um, and had taken into Gaza. And it's just, it's horrific. So the scale of this, the way they went into Israel, the atrocities they committed against innocent Israeli civilians, this is completely unprecedented. Yeah, you mentioned being a bloodbath, and I saw some of the just really disturbing images and videos uh, I think related to that music festival attack, there were girls being raped next to dead bodies, uh, presumably of their friends. And now some of these uh, survivors have been taken into Gaza as hostages. So can you, you know, maybe if, you know, if people aren't really familiar with the situation, can we give them a quick primer on what Hamas is uh, and how this organization has operated in the past? Hamas is a terrorist organization that was born in 1987, and its sole purpose uh, at that time in particular was to create an Islamic state that includes 
uh, Israel and uh, all of Palestine, all of the Palestinian territories, West Bank and Gaza. That means, and uh, and that has that has always been their goal. They at some point updated, allegedly updated their mission to say that they would accept. Uh, they would accept this land that went that went back to 1967 borders. That's the borders of how things looked between Israel and Palestinian territories back then. Um, that they would accept that uh, in, in, if if Israel also paid reparations and allowed Palestinian refugees, all Palestinian refugees, to return among a bunch of different conditions. But the fact is that nobody has ever really believed that that they uh, that they genuinely believe that because their their entire existence reason to exist is is to is to obliterate israel and to, and and they've yeah. said that numerous times that they don't believe in israel's right to exist and that um and and so they pursue terrorist attacks like that now in uh, 2007 as i mentioned they won elections in gaza and took over gaza and the, the um. important thing to note here is that so you've got a, a terrorist organization that is now controlling a plot of land and the people in it. And I feel it's very important to make the distinction between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank. And although the Palestinian Authority doesn't say it very much publicly, I can tell you, because I worked in the U.S. government and I worked very closely Mm -hmm. on these issues, that the Palestinian Authority hates Hamas. And they would like nothing more than Israel to obliterate Hamas's willingness and ability to fight. And that is because they don't like that they govern this part of uh, they govern Gaza and govern is, by the way, I mean, I, you know, I want to put govern in that term loosely. Yeah. 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 I mean, they technically they govern technically that they they are controlling the area and submitting Palestinians to to their rule and to their will. There haven't been any elections, by the way, since they took over Mm -hmm. um, in 2007. Uh, uh, Apparently, they pick the trash up better than uh, than the Palestinian Authority. But there's a whole other host of of issues that come with that, uh, with having them be in in power. Um, And so that's really the, the summary of Hamas. Okay, so the reason I asked is because these hostages that are being that are I don't know how many they have now. I think there were 260 people killed and taken hostage. It's unclear how many of them uh, uh, survived from the music festival. But it seems to be a very strategic move on Hamas's part to take people into Gaza, presumably to negotiate or something. And we know uh, I'm re- I'm recalling the the story of Gilad Shalit. I think was his name, an Israeli army officer who was. Uh, I think this was back in 2011 or so, and he was traded for a thousand Palestinian uh, prisoners at the time. How does the hostage situation complicate things for Israel now, uh, now that they've begun their counteroffensive here? Yeah, it complicates things very deeply. So I'm glad you mentioned Gilad Shalit. Um, he was an Israeli officer, as you mentioned. He was kidnapped, uh, t- abducted by Hamas in 2006. So he was taken uh, hostage for five years. And those negotiations lasted those the, for those five years and ultimately ended in a prisoner exchange that, as you mentioned, they swapped Gilad Shalit for a thousand Palestinian prisoners. And the, the reason this is an important one to note is because the Israeli um, Israeli society and government both uh, place a very uh, high emphasis. Um, and, and I think it's amazing, by the way, on life, on the sanctity of life and on their people. And they they really... They they don't want to ever do anything to endanger those individuals. To you know, they 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 believe very deeply in in negotiating for them and for their release. And so, when you have a situation where you've got this unprecedented and horrific terrorist attack and all these atrocities, and the expected response, of course, and that expected brutal response has already begun. Israel has already begun striking uh, Gaza. The numbers as of Tuesday are 900 total dead Israelis and over 700 dead in Gaza um, following these these strikes. And it complicates things because, number one, they they have to be careful where they strike. They're not going to want to inadvertently kill any of the hostages um, and have them have them die at their own mm-hmm. missiles and weaponry. That's the first. Second is that um, Hamas has come out and said that if Israel targets any residence or, or building and doesn't give enough fair warning for, for individuals to evacuate, then they will kill these hostages live on air. So basically now we're talking about ISIS. Hamas is as bad as yeah. ISIS. Um, 
you know, be, just beyond disgusting, obviously. But but I also, by the way, this is a terrorist organization. I wouldn't trust them for I, no matter what right. they say. Even if they said, right. by the way, that that Israel has to give advance notice, Israel usually does give advance notice. Sometimes it's very late, um, but they usually do give advance notice. It doesn't mean Hamas will. Hamas is going to do what Hamas wants to do at this point. Um, so what you're talking about is. In order to get the hostages released, you're going to have to have, on one hand, Israeli ground forces going into Gaza, which they haven't done since Israel left Gaza now almost 20 years ago when they occupied it. Uh, So they're going to have to go in and try to release them. Uh, Perhaps it could even mean some kind of longer term reoccupation of Gaza, though I'm certain Israel doesn't want to do that. Uh, given how how much they really didn't like mm-hmm. it the first time, um, and second, it it may mean negotiations that are very that that put Israel in a v- very vulnerable position. And by the way, yeah. I would add that some of these hostages may be American citizens, which means that yeah. it will involve the United States as well in in in, in negotiations. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm looking at the numbers now, and we're up to at least 11 Americans confirmed dead now, presumably. Um, many, if not all, are uh, dual U.S.-Israel citizens, um, and this uh, really complicates things. So we're talking now on Tuesday, some number of hours before Biden is set to give an address. He hasn't said uh, really anything except uh, we will never fail to have Israel's back. But there's a major question here about what the U.S. is going to do in response. Obviously, we don't have a Speaker of the House, so getting aid through Congress right now is uh, complicated, if not impossible. Um, so how do you uh, how, how do you think about the, basically the U.S. position here? Um, w- what do we do next? Well, you know, I will I will say that uh, while this attack is unprecedented, the U.S. government is also not not used to handling crises of this a crisis of this kind. Um, and, and I will say that no matter what you think of the president, uh, he has been around for a very long time and handled numerous foreign policy crises that have been similar, um, in nature. And particularly as it comes to supporting Israel, the United States has a defense pact with Israel. And that's very important to remember. And because, uh, so if, if Israel is attacked, it means that we, we come to their defense and we do already a lot to support the defense. Uh, we funded or helped fund at least the Iron Dome which is the missile defense system that that Israel has to protect itself against incoming rockets. It has an 85 to 90% success rate. It is very, very impressive at uh, detecting incoming rockets and and intercepting them. Um, And now with what you have, Biden has already come out and said, you know, we stand ready to support Israel in whatever it needs. Having been on the other side, with the the way the violence is looking right now, that aid will likely look like uh, possibly additional equipment and and um, that they may need, but more importantly, technological support, intelligence support, uh, coordination, things, anything that the U.S. and the U.S. intelligence can do to help them locate mm. the hostages, uh, negotiate with those uh, for those hostages, uh, target where Hamas is launching missiles. Those, that kind of effort to target has often usually been a game of whack-a-mole because launching those missiles can really actually be done anywhere. It can be done on top of an apartment building, which it often is, uh, on top of a school, on top of a hospital. Uh, I wouldn't, don't put it past these terrorist organizations to think of targets that are the most horrific. Um, And so that's what the U.S. will likely help with at this stage. You mentioned intelligence, which is another thread I wanted to pull on. Uh, There's been a lot of coverage about just how big a failure of intelligence this was for Israel. And Israel has uh, sort of famously excellent intelligence services. And so I wonder if you can put that in context for us. And, um, you know, are, basically, how sure are we that this was uh, Israel's intelligence services asleep at the wheel? And how do we know that they weren't betrayed or that there was some sort of intentional deception uh, happening here with the help of uh, Hamas's allies? There's, there was definitely a massive intelligence failure here that we can say with certainty. And, you know, by the way, not too unlike the intelligence failure we had in the run up to our own 9-11 and yeah. uh, where we just didn't connect the dots. So some of the intelligence may or may have not been there. You know, I don't know for, for sure because I don't know the inside. But the fact is that those dots weren't connected to paint this bigger picture. And it mm-hmm. is 
staggering because it, the Israeli intelligence is known as one of the best in the business. I can tell you that I worked very closely with Israeli intelligence yeah. throughout my government career, particularly in counter-terrorist financing. The, the the terrorist groups that were under my portfolio included Hamas and Hezbollah, and uh, Israel was very helpful on that, obviously. Um, when it comes to that region, Israel's intelligence is, is top-notch, and it's known for that. And so how they missed this or how they didn't connect the dots is really hard. What I can tell you is that for sure, knowing the Israeli government and knowing how they approach uh, the discipline of their intelligence, they will do a very heavy review. And by the way, just like the United States after 9-11, I expect that they're going to re, you know, they're going to restructure and reorganize so that something like this doesn't happen again. The only thing I can say is that they got that they got too comfortable, that they fell asleep at the wheel, as you mm. said. And and that's that's likely because they were focusing on other threats um, hmm. or because, because they got comfortable thinking they had, they had Gaza under control. They had it, you know, they didn't expect an attack, an attack like this. And even if they did expect it, perhaps they didn't expect it to this degree um, because on some level, they've always known that attacks come. They have always known that attacks come from Hamas and, and certainly when it comes to rockets, but I'll be honest with yeah. you, you know, when I first saw the news on this breaking, which broke our time Friday night, and I saw yeah. I saw news clips about Hamas lobbing rockets into Israel. I took a snapshot of the, of the article to remind myself to talk about it on my show this week. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we woke up Saturday morning, all hell had broken loose. But when I saw that news Friday Friday night, I didn't think much of it. I thought, you know, oh, oh here we go again. This is yet another round yeah. of violence where they're going to lob rockets. The Iron Dome will protect most. We'll intercept most of the rockets, and you know, and here we go. Um, I don't think anybody could have seen this coming. So there was definitely something there where they slept at the wheel. And I have to, I would be remiss if I didn't mention in this regard, the distractions that may have existed because of the Israeli government's policies. Now, I want to be very, very clear when I talk about this, that this is in no way meant to justify terrorism. Nothing justifies terrorism. Um, And uh, at no behavior or policy by the Israeli government uh, ever justifies terrorist acts against Jews. Um, but as foreign policy experts, we have to look at the context. And uh, at this, this, this is a time when the Israeli government is focusing a lot of its efforts on the West Bank, and where you have, by the way, Israeli soldiers protecting settlers expanding in the West Bank. So you've got military resources focused there. You've got intel resources focused on militants in the West Bank. And of course, the threat posed by Iran. And so my, 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 my assumption is that, and I have to note that I'm speculating here, but my speculation, having worked on these issues a long time, is that they were distracted and resources were, were focused on other areas. And Hamas got very lucky mm-hmm. between that, between the fact that it was done on a holiday, um, all of those factors helped them have uh, a successful terrorist attack. Uh, we've got to talk about Iran, um, and we need to understand the link between Iran and Hamas. We know that Iran has long been a supporter of terrorism and Hamas specifically. Um, and the Wall Street Journal has reported that Iran gave the green light for this terrorist attack, and they are uh, basing that on uh, senior leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah claiming that that's the case. So. What do you make of that claim? I know it's been challenged in some of the mainstream press lately. And if it's not true, how would that lie benefit Hamas and Hezbollah? Right. You know, I saw this Wall Street Journal piece, and I have no reason not to believe it, because I also know Lebanon very well. And I know how these organizations coordinate and discuss. And Iran is the boss, period. Hezbollah and Hamas don't do anything without Iran's okay or green light. And I thought the word green light was very interesting here because the terminology and understanding exactly the extent to which Iran supported Hamas in this attack is critical in guiding Israel's response toward Iran. Because if it was just a green light, if it was just Hamas that planned and and supported themselves and, and equipped themselves and executed the whole thing, and they just wanted to make sure that their boss signed off on it, and gave the quote green light, then it may limit Israel's response toward Iran. But if more intelligence is gathered, and it looks like they still have have a lot of work to do on this, if they discover that Israel played a very heavy hand in 
helping Hamas plan and execute this attack. They already know, we all already know how much Iran uses the limited funds it already has to support Hamas. And they have for, for, for decades. Um, but how much were they involved in this actual terrorist attack will, will guide how Israel responds and whether Israel strikes Iran, which, by the way, if that happens, and, and I would put that at a 50-50 chance, I don't think that that's unlikely. Mm. I also don't think it's for sure. Mm. Um, but if that happens, it will, it will absolutely drag Lebanon in because uh, Iran's proxy is really sitting in Lebanon right north of Israel, Hezbollah, and, and, and has already, they've already said that if, if Iran were to be struck, Hezbollah would strike Israel, and then it would engulf Lebanon in this, uh, for sure. And I think yeah. that's a wild card. And I, like I said, I put it at 50-50. It, is, it could go either way. Um, but so understanding that is, is, is those details is very important to guiding Israel. But I also, it just, it doesn't surprise me that, that, that meeting yeah. that, that it happened. And sorry, you asked the second question about what, how would it benefit Hamas to lie about this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because a lot mm-hmm. of people have pushed back on that claim and they're saying, no, you know, that's, that's uh, what, maybe it's not true or it's unfounded or something. I, and here's, here's why I, think that might be the case, because how would it change the way the U.S. essentially must respond if it is, if it is discovered that Iran was instrumental in this attack? How would it change, um, you know, uh, concerns about, I mean, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but World War III and the way uh, the, essentially the U.S. getting dragged into um, uh, a war with a, with a nuclear adversary? I'm not trying to scare you, but you are not being hyperbolic when you talk about World War III, because unfortunately, this is how world wars begin. Um, not that I think it's likely, but uh, but this is how they begin, and yeah. we could get, I could get into that. But um, yeah. I'm, just, Iran, I'm just saying maybe, maybe that is a reason for uh, trying to uh, downplay concerns that Iran might have been behind this, because it would essentially uh, take some, take, you know, force, force our hands in some ways. You know yes, I mean? you're right about that. You are right about that. If it's found that Iran was very heavily involved or, or involved more than just green lighting, basically, then 100 mm-hmm. percent, it completely undoes the Iran policy that the Biden administration had been pursuing. Now, that said, I don't want to overstate the Iran policy the Biden administration had been pursuing, because to be perfectly frank, it was flailing. And mm-hmm. they tried to reopen nuclear talks um, during the protests last year against the mandatory hijab. I thought the Biden administration did not do a good job at, um, at well, they decided not to, uh, to, they decided not to take the Iran nuclear talks off the table just because of the protests, which I thought was wrong, mm. by the way. They kept, they had a talking yeah. point they kept re- repeating, which was, you know, this is not our priority right now. They could sing the quote right now. And I thought that that really reflected weakness because the regime sees that and says, oh, well, well that means we could do anything. And the U.S. government is still going to want to talk to us and deal with us. Yeah. Um, and so, what, but, but since then, it's really been stagnant. Nothing, nothing has happened. In fact, the, the special envoy for Iran or the, the, the man tasked with handling it, Rob Malley, is not even at his desk because he's under investigation at the moment. Um, and so it's, it's, it's just been kind of halted, if it will. It's kind of a held, almost imagine if, it, if the Iran policy is stopped in midair and they don't know which way they're going. And this, if they, if they learn and it will become public, even if the U.S. knows more than we know, eventually this mm-hmm. stuff will become public. Yeah. If Iran was involved yeah. more than green lighting, then it, it absolutely forces the Biden administration's hand, not just in, in, in not pursuing nuclear talks, but in pursuing a, a, tougher, a tougher approach that they had been avoiding, uh, avoiding taken, taking. One of the questions I got today was about, and I'm happy to unpack this for you, the $6 billion yeah. that was... Um, yeah, that's of, where in, I'm in, going next. Yeah. That's so go ahead. I don't want to preempt you. Go ahead. Ask me. Well, Let's talk about well, well, no, no, no. This, this is this is perfect because it, 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 we can't talk about Iran without talking about the immediate rearview mirror, which is the U.S. unfreezing six billion dollars worth of uh, Iranian money that was held in a South Korean uh, bank account, I believe. Now it's been transferred to Qatar uh, that is explicitly to be used for humanitarian uh, causes. So. You've discussed this. I think a lot of other people have discussed this. And I've seen, I've seen a lot of people I respect on social media saying, hang on, you need to get this right. Not a single penny of that has been spent. And if we did know, if it had been, we would know about it. And, uh, and so we can, track, we can track all of it. And none of that money was used to support Hamas. Okay, I understand that. 
here's my question. What do you do with the money is fungible argument? If, if, if Iran knows that it has $6 million accessible now, that it didn't have $6 billion, excuse me, accessible now, that it didn't have before, it seems to me that it's just a matter of accounting to move money that you would not otherwise have spent on terrorist activities now that you have $6 billion to fund humanitarian uh, stuff. So what do you do with the money is fungible argument here? Yeah, I'm so glad we're going to talk about this because I worked at the Treasury Department um, and for a long time on these issues. And it's not going to surprise you, I feel quite strongly about this and about setting the record straight yeah. about this. Yeah. So as you mentioned, these are Iranian frozen assets that were in South Korea. They were there uh, following the sale of, of Iranian oil, proceeds from the sale of Iranian oil, and they, and they were stuck there. And, and, um, and that was common. But there are, there are frozen Iranian assets all over the world because of the sale of Iranian oil and and uh, which were which was frozen so they allowed this move, my, my money to be moved to the Qatari central bank for for humanitarian purposes only so purchasing food and food and uh, and aid and so for anybody wondering by the way whether whether that seems naive like how on earth are we going to know how are, how on earth are we going to monitor that money and know that it is in fact being used for humanitarian uh, purposes oh uh, we know medicine and such <laughs> yeah we know Yes, we know, and we have there's precedent for it because we uh, between 2011 and 2014 we had Iran oil sanctions and countries same same process where countries had uh, bought Iranian oil but they had to keep the money frozen in their countries only used for humanitarian purposes and I was at the Treasury Department and if there was ever a slip you better bet a Treasury official was on a plane the next day to wherever that was to tell them hey. We saw this, you better shape up or risk getting sanctioned. Mm-hmm. So we have ways of monitoring that stuff. So anyway, that's, that's the first part. But the second part, as you mentioned, is that none of the money has been spent. So you've got that part. But the question on this argument about money being fungible, money in, in a lot of instances, money is fungible. Like you said, if you're allowing them to have access to certain funding, then doesn't it end up freeing up things that they could use for nefarious purposes? The answer to that is yes for most governments, but not for Iran. And the reason for that is that Iran doesn't spend any money on humanitarian aid or food or medicine. That's not how the regime operates. They always have prioritized, especially under sanctions, they have always prioritized the little money they have in supporting terrorist objectives across the Middle East and trying to spread their influence across across the region. And we know that it's one of the main main complaints among protesters in Iran that that this is what the Iranian government supports. They constantly has constantly see Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, militant groups in Yemen and Iraq getting funded by Iran when their own economy is failing. And so my point in telling you this is that that six billion to be used for food and, and medicine, it doesn't change anything. It, 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 it's mm. not that they would have originally spent six billion on food and medicine and now they've freed it up. It's that yeah. even under the maximum pressure campaign, even under um, no matter what sanctions, they have always allocated a very large chunk of their budget to these purposes. And this humanitarian aid is really nothing but extra that they wouldn't have normally spent. Okay, this is really, really helpful. So when the Iranian president says, we're going to spend this $6 billion wherever we want to, thank you very much. You don't believe them, uh, and/or uh, they can't without us knowing about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. First of all, he's only—he's a liar. But he's only saying I don't believe <laughs> the word he says. Um, but he's only saying that because he's trying to talk to his own population, and he's trying yeah. to project power. You know, as though the U.S.—the U.S. is not going to dictate to him how he can spend this money. Yeah. But by the way, the 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 irony of that is that. Iranians don't like that argument either because they heard him say that and they were thinking to themselves, thanks, our currency has crashed, our economy is failing, and, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you have the morality police out for us again. And all you're telling yeah. us right now is that this money you're getting, you're going to spend to support terrorists across the region yet again. Um, and yeah. so uh, it only goes to highlight for you the, the stupidity yeah. of the Iranian regime. But that's, yeah, I don't believe him. He was only saying that to project power. So is there a reason? Then, given that we know uh, even it, even even in the you know most limited case, Iran uh, signed off on the attack. Is there a reason why the Biden administration didn't just immediately refreeze those funds? So this is this is why I didn't want to preempt this conversation because 
I think that I believe, and you know, it's hard to say where they land on this because they're not going to want to appear as though they um, are reneging on on deals made because that that could have an impact on future negotiations for anything, whether it's related to prisoners or or, or other things. They, the U.S. doesn't like to be seen as you know, oh well, we 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 decided this at that moment, but now that things have changed, we've changed our mind. Um, and it's it's hard to decide if they really at this point, given that the funds are in a Qatari central bank and that the U.S. already allowed that. It, I, I'm not saying that the U.S. can't do it because um, Qatar is a very is a, is a close friend of the United States. Um, even though, by the way, Qatar allows Hamas uh, fundraisers to recruit and fund and raise funds in in Qatar, but we can talk about it another time. Um, but that said, Qatar is a is a friend of the United States, and I'm pretty sure that if the U.S. went to Qatar and said, "Listen," you know, we, we really have no choice but to refreeze these funds that, that Qatar would work it out with the United States. Uh, so that option has to be on the table, which way that what, what, what they decide is a bit unclear. Knowing the Biden administration and how it operates and how they're going to want not they're, they're not going to want to change the elements of that deal. My assumption is that they're going to look look to other ways. To, to punish Iran, mm. um, other sanctions, perhaps other money that's, that's, um, that somehow they're raising, uh, uh, things of that kind. Okay, so let's zoom out a little bit, and um, maybe you can give uh, listeners a sense of what the international response has been. Um, sort of, if you take a tour around the world, um, how have other world leaders responded to this attack, and what does it tell us about their own interests? Yeah, this is a good one. So the um, the statements coming out of Europe and the United States have been incredibly strong uh, in terms of supporting Israel, standing with Israel, uh, reiterating that uh, that that they you know that nothing justifies this terrorist attack and that Israel has the, has the right to defend itself. And you've seen that um, time and again, and you also saw uh, at some point. Yesterday, I believe Monday, all the each capital lit up their um, certain, uh, different monuments or buildings with mm. Isra- Israeli colors or in the Israeli flag, and so it was meant to express mm-hmm. solidarity with Israel. And so they've been very loud about that. The the statements from the Gulf and the region um, are, I find, what are the most fascinating uh, because they range. First of all, they're not they really do differ uh, um, in different ways, and they they more than anything they reflect their own interests. So um, the UAE, for example, had a bit more of a measured response, definitely noting that that um, nothing justifies terrorism um, and uh, and that they condemn this terrorist attack. Um, and, you know, also um, uh, and, and also trying to urge restraint. And you saw that a lot. You saw Egypt, for example, uh, urging restraint. This was a big one. Uh, Saudi Arabia came out a bit more um, against any, you know, they didn't they didn't condemn the terrorist attack. Uh, and which I find shocking, given terrorist attacks that Saudis have suffered, and um, and the fact that they don't like mm. Hamas, by the way, and they don't like that Iran supports them. Um, but but Saudi Arabia was not very supportive of Israel at all, and and, and it, I'm not I'm not surprised by that. I'm not saying that they I would I would expect that, but I would have expected at least more condemnation of the terrorist attack itself. And it's because each one has different different reasons. So Egypt is urging restraint. They urge restraint. And, and I want to say they were one of the first people out. Uh, with their statement. And the, the reason for that is that they don't want refugees flooding into Egypt. And mm. Egypt and Israel both have a blockade against Gaza. And I always think that's important. People forget the history of Egypt and Gaza. Egypt at a certain point decades ago, I'm talking like in the 50s and 60s, um, was uh, controlled Gaza or had kind of had the task of, of overseeing it, if you will, and then, mm. uh, and then didn't anymore. And um, now Egypt just maintains this border crossing called the Rafa Gate. Um, and they don't want to see refugees pouring in. They don't want to see any kind of uh, undermining of their own security. They don't want to see, uh, they don't want to see things spill over and violence to get bad. So that's why Egypt said that, but they all, but they didn't come out directly to condemn the terrorist attack uh, either. Mm-hmm. The UAE has this normalization deal with uh, Israel and they gain a lot from it. So while they are very careful to their own population and how they may feel on, on this issue, on this conflict, the UAE doesn't want to undo the work it's done with that deal. A trade between Israel and the UAE has skyrocketed in one right. year by $20 billion, um, if not more than that by now. 
and um, they they stand to gain a lot between security cooperation, trade, and technology, and uh, and technology investments and, and development and so on. Um, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, and here's the one that's the most important one that I want to hone in on. Yeah. Um, Saudi Arabia, as we know, is has been negotiating. There was this big deal in the works, right? Yes. And listen, it 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 depending on who you talk to, that deal. Some people say, I saw somebody saying, someone really well sourced saying that that deal was almost at the finish line. It was like a week away before completion. I don't believe that. I think that Mm. it was moving along and that there was real progress and that the Biden administration had real reason to hope that a deal might happen perhaps by the end of the year or before, you know, before the end of Biden's first term. But I don't think it was a week away, by the way. Um, And what happened now will most certainly postpone the talks but I have no reason to believe they'll undo them. And the reason for that is that while this attack is unprecedented, Saudi Arabia has been talking to Israel, even though you've had those other four rounds of violence I mentioned, including two rounds that were very recent, one last year and one the year before. Mm. And they were pursuing these talks with Bibi Netanyahu, who has a cabinet that is extremely far right, uh, to quote President Biden, quite extreme, pursuing, actively pursuing tough, hardline, provocative policies against Palestinians. And so, and Saudi, Saudi Arabia was still negotiating with them. So Saudi Arabia, at the end of the day, and the, and the Gulf countries, they, the frustration among the Palestinians is that the Gulf countries have not prioritized the Palestinian issue for a long time. And, and they don't. They have other interests they've prioritized when it comes to pushing back on Iran, getting that kind of security, cooperation and intelligence, and also helping Israel, helping them develop their own economies and diversify their own economies. Um, mm. That said, a lot of that frustration, by the way, and the reason why the Gulf has, has, if you will, demoted that issue in terms of the list of interests is because of the Palestinian Authority, because it's, the leadership is very corrupt. It's totally feckless. It has zero control over Hamas. And and I can tell you, having been on the other side in the U.S., that negotiating with the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government, by the way, is almost impossible. Um, every administration has tried to bridge that gap and to bring them closer to something, to bring uh, to, to bridge that divide. And and there has been no successful effort since Bill Clinton. And that is not mm. the fault of the United States or the Gulf. It is the fault yeah. of Israeli and Palestinian leadership. Um, and so anyway, that's to bring it to bring it broader. Yeah. But I'll just end on one point on this, which is that I do not believe that this attack was done in order to un, to undermine those talks. Mm. I, I, mm. I think that it would be naive to think they, that Hamas and, and Iran didn't think it'd be a bonus because they knew it would undermine those talks. And they're terrorists. And that's how terrorists operate. They, they believe that by behaving this way, they can they can achieve their political goals. So I thought they, I think they thought it was a bonus, but I don't think that that was the driving force behind this. One last place to go before uh, we hang up here is Russia uh, and Putin's, uh, shall we say, muted response on the attack. Um, how do you read Russia's posture toward this? Because you know, the New York Times is reporting that uh, his response or lack of response speaks volumes and obviously, Russia has a lot to gain by uh, by this. So, can you can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was looking to, for Russia's response as soon as this all unfolded because Russia maintains a very, or or a, a, particularly before the Ukraine war, but even mm-hmm. even with the Ukraine war, Russia and Israel have maintained um, a, a strong relationship. You have numerous Russian Jews. Who live in Israel? By the way, you've been, there are areas in in Israel, um, certain towns and kibbutz where kibbutzim where they only speak Russian, um, and so there's a yeah. very close ties there, historical ties. And, and I, um, I would also mm-hmm. just note that they also sold Russia uh, Pegasus software, I believe, and didn't stop even after the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Completely. Yes. Oh no, it, there have been numerous times where where um, first of all, yes, they sold them Pegasus. Um, which you know to infiltrate activists and other and and, and the phone uh, the phones and and data of other of of other activists and other people, but but President Zelensky has repeatedly come out publicly and said like, hey Israel, you need to support us. You must you yeah. you must understand this fight. How can you not support us more? So Israel's always kind of you know has 
you know, and they, they've become a bit more muted since the Ukraine war, but they're 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 a little bit trying to eat, like, have their cake, eat, cake and eat it too, kind of like India a little bit, um, mm. where they want to maintain this relationship with Russia, um, but they also understand that the plight of Ukraine, they have supported Ukraine as well, by the way. So, you know, they're kind of sitting in this gray zone here. And um, so you have that on one hand. And then on the other hand, Putin, uh, his, his new bro is the Ayatollah of Iran. And uh, Iran is actively selling weapons and drones to Russia. It is a relationship that Putin is actively investing in and, and, mm. and growing. And, we, and, uh, and, and that's because Putin is, uh, he has very few friends left. He's very isolated. He has very right. few friends left he can turn to for equipment and, and um, any kind of technology or military support. And so Iran has been one of the biggest ones. And so while Russia has, and listen, not to my knowledge, but I have no reason to think that Russia had anything to do with this terrorist attack on the part of Hamas. Russia has very, a very, very low tolerance for Islamic extremism, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. While they had nothing to do with it, it doesn't mean that in the long run it couldn't serve their interests. And the reason for that, and that's why, by the way, I said that your hyperbole on World War III mm-hmm. is not hyperbole. That's because if this war drags out and is prolonged, which Netanyahu has said it will be. Um, and I would note that the definition of prolonged and, and dragged out is not the same for us. It's not like as long as Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, it's just that usually they're used to per- finishing these off in operations of, of a few weeks um, and it'll likely last longer. But anyway, um, if that drags out longer and the U.S. is committing resources to Israel, um, especially at a time when all this aid is you know, aid to Ukraine is being questioned and, and our own financial issues and so on, um, then it, 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 will, it will tighten resources for everybody. And so the, the more we give to Israel in this moment, especially emergency type of aid, whether it's related to ammunition or weapons or, or whatever it might be, is inevitably going to decrease the amount that can be given to Ukraine. And that works in Putin's favor. And so yeah. that's why his response is muted, because he doesn't really have an interest. He doesn't like Islamic extremism, but if it's happening over in the Middle East um, and, and, uh, and he can still get his weapons from Iran, then he doesn't feel the need to come out and support Israel. If the world is uh, paying attention to a different brutal war somewhere else, then they're not paying attention to his. Yeah. Yep. It only benefits yeah. him. And it only benefits yeah. him if the U.S. is is actively supporting Israel more than than it has already been, because uh, he'd rather see us tied up there than right. than in Ukraine, for sure. And this is why I said right. the thing, you know, world wars, this is kind of a little bit how they start, where you've got like they kind of pop up, even though they may be different. Um, they are all connected in some way, shape or form. And yeah. uh, and again, and I don't want to threaten world war. I don't think that we live in an era right, anymore where yeah. um, where world war could really happen. But it's it's extremely concerning nonetheless. OK, Hagar, I know you're very busy in high demand right now. Um, and so before I let you go, is there anything that we didn't touch on you think people need to know? And then also, I'm just curious, how do you stay on top of the news and parse the good information from the faulty or, you know, untrustworthy sources. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh, well, first of all, I stay off of X. (laughs) So anytime, you know, I went, for example, I went to X um, and it's a shame, like, you know, maybe I could go to people I trust on X to go see what they're saying. That's that, you know, I'll do that. And I, I think, I still think it's valuable for, for other reasons, because I like it when people reach out to me personally um, and, and, and want to, start a conversation of some kind or ask me a question. But um, I went, for example, when I heard yesterday that there were strikes in Beirut, um, I, the, there were, there, it was happening too fast for the press to cover it right away. So the first thing I did was go to X because that's what they specialize in is this kind yeah. of breaking news. So I put in the search yeah. bar, you know, Lebanon, Israel, something like this. And, you know, and, and the, 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 the series of shit and I saw was just, it was part annoying and part just infuriating because so there were so many lies and so much spin and, and so much, you know, just this rhetoric that is not helpful. Um, so there's that. Uh, but, but, uh, what I, what I tend to do is I just, I have a lot of news sources. I really trust, um, particularly wires, and um, mm. so first, mm. I, 
I, I look at the wires in particular for, for and, and, and by the way, in all the, the major outlets, the reputable ones, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, foreign policy has, has been great on this because yeah. they all, they have, they have really, they have experts and trusted um, folks who will really write very thoughtfully on these issues. And yeah. so, you know, I kind of do, a, I, I run the gamut of it, but, um, but I, I, I find that for situations like this, social media can do more harm than good because you've got mm. just people fighting about rhetoric. And, uh, and, and just today I posted about, you know, why condemning this terrorist attack is important and why going out there and, and saying that, that you support your Jewish friends. And that no yeah. terrorism against Jews is ever justified. And that you can absolutely condemn this attack while still being against Israeli government uh, uh, policy or behavior toward Palestinians. And that they're not mutually exclusive. And one doesn't justify yeah. the other. And, that, and that's fine. But people just say it's a, this issue is very sensitive and controversial. And the reason for that, and I get asked by a lot of my students, why this issue is so um, polarizing. And the reason is because, um, and, and, and I learned this a little bit from my own therapist, by the way, uh, not on this issue, but other, other political issues, is that people are not debating politics. They are debating right. history and land and mm. religion and culture and morals. And, um, and when it comes to that, it becomes an almost impossible discussion because people yeah. have completely stubborn views of, of, of what they think is their view. And, and that's, you know, and you have to respect it, but um, it's a very difficult conversation. So I would, I would urge to stay off social media a little bit um, like Instagram and X, otherwise you're just going to get yourself angry and, and, and you're going to see videos that are going to upset. And I'm not saying bury yourself in the, in the sand. It's important to, to see what's happening and feel this pain. Um, otherwise yeah. we, it will continue to happen. We can't, we cannot justify terrorism. This is what I've been telling people. You justify terrorism, that is a very slippery slope, um, a very dangerous mm-hmm. slope. Um, mm-hmm. n- that terrorism is not resistant. It is not the same thing. Yeah. And um, we can absolutely distinguish between them. And so so I hope I haven't rambled here, but I think it's an important point no. because, yeah. yeah, you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do. And actually, you know, I was talking with our producer here uh, after I had taken a tour around all of the media and I got to be I got to be really honest with you. I was astounded at the degree to which the left-leaning outlets and personalities were justifying or, you know, sort of explicitly um, calling attention to the plight of the Palestinians and avoiding uh, calling evil what it is. And, uh, and of course we saw the DSA protests in New York. And, um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I used to think that the, that that really, in my view, despicable bias only existed in a small corner of the far left, like in the squad. And uh, and uh, over the last day or two, it's been really obvious how 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 much more pervasive it was than I thought. And so we'll be getting into the politics of of this stuff uh, on the roundup this week on Friday. But um, yeah, I was just. I was just curious how you how you how you parse the good information from the propaganda, considering there's there's a there's a lot more propaganda around this than you know than we would wish. Yeah, I find like when I see articles, you know, and I and I, I hope it's okay for me to name a few, but or name yeah. some outlets. Yeah. But like when I see, for example, today I was searching, um, I was searching the latest on the intelligence failure and. And so on. And, you know, an article from NPR and PBS popped up. And, and those are the first ones I clicked because I knew that they were going to give me just unbiased mm-hmm. reporting and kind of the whole story. Um, and then at the same time, I saw something from Al Jazeera. And I don't, you know, I was going to say I don't mean to throw Al Jazeera under the bus, but I am perfectly comfortable throwing Al Jazeera under the bus. Hmm. They had a video on Instagram um, uh, yesterday where they they described the whole thing. The video begins with, for the first for for the first time in history, Palestinians have broken out of their open air prison, and and wow. flooded into their homeland. And I was like, "Are you serious?" And I was wow. waiting for additional details that maybe you know that that maybe this was just this uh, clickbaity hook, and that they, they would continue to, to explain, but they didn't. And 
Um, and, you know, and I've always been very wary of Al Jazeera. And it, by the way, it's backed by Qatar. It's, you know, in part funded by the Qatari government. And that is fact. Um, but when I saw that, I was like, this is dangerous because there are a lot of young people on here looking at Instagram and they see a video like that. And that's all they're mm-hmm. going to see. And then they're going to mm-hmm. see the protest in New York and they're going to see, um, you know, the squad. And, yeah, the, and, and, the, and the, the protest yeah. in New York, we should be clear. So I didn't clarify that they are they are protesting in support of the Palestinian in support of Hamas, essentially. And what happened here? And they're, they were singing a chant that I came to learn was the so the slogan of wiping Israel off the face of the map, I think from river to the sea or something like that. This is what the Mm -hmm. Democratic Socialists of America in New York were chanting uh, in Times Square. And it just blew my mind. It's disgusting. It's revolting. Well, and by the way, like, I mean, some of their leaders, you know, I've I've seen some rhetoric about, and you'll probably get into this um, this week, but, you know, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Governor Whitmer of Michigan, you know, not coming out to condemn the attack itself, but instead kind of have this like wishy-washy language. And it's because there's a very large Palestinian um, American population in Michigan. That is absurd that we can, I don't understand why we can't have, well, we can't do both. Why can't you condemn terrorist attacks and also say, by the way, Palestinians deserve a state that they freely and independently govern and they deserve their human rights. Why can't both exist? And I will, I will, I will add one final note that that nobody's really covering, but I saw it in an NPR or, or Atlantic article this today, and I was so happy they mentioned it. The Palestinian Authority hates Hamas. They hate them. Mm. They, and mm. they have helped Israel in the past in targeting Hamas. They've cooperated with Israel. Why? Because it is in the Palestinian Authority's interest to see Hamas's ability and willingness to fight and govern obliterated. Mm. And, mm. and so... I, while I understand why they're not going to come out and, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't justify it. I understand why they don't come out and condemn this attack more loudly. I also think they would do themselves a lot of favors if they did, because they are not, they they are not the same. Um, And Hamas doesn't represent all Palestinians at all. In fact, it is not the, they don't represent the majority of them. Um, And so not you know, being afraid to speak up, and as you know, I am never afraid to speak up, but not, you know, it, it's so important, but particularly when you're talking about any terrorist attack and a terrorist yeah. attack that is very clearly and yeah. very clearly ethically driven. Yeah, I think Mona Karen really summed it up in a headline she wrote for the Bulwark recently, which is Hamas makes war on Israelis and Palestinians. And that was well put. Yes, the biggest uh, tragedy of this, I swear this will be the last thing I say. The biggest tragedy yeah. of this is that the people who will who will suffer and die the most are innocent Israelis and Palestinians. Yeah. Hagar, thanks, my friends. I know you're busy. I appreciate your time. Talk to you no, soon. No, thank you. Talk later, Ron. <laughs> Bye.